Hey, this is Jason Metcalf, uh, cover artist for Zenoscope, White Widow, Persuasion, and more. You're listening to the Top 5 po- Comic Podcast. Welcome to Top 5 Comics Podcast, people talking about comics, pop culture, and events. With us today, we have the intergalactic space guardian, Josh45. What's up? We have the Captain of the Seven Seas with Rob. Uh, oh, ahoy. And we have the guy from the Undiscovered Country, not the Star Trek movie, CBS, which would be me. There's another Undiscovered Country, and it's not? Well, there's the comic book, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, you know. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, I see what you were doing. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, with things. Mm-hmm. So today we're doing episode number 127. Yeah, all right. Um, see, book-wise, we're going to be going over uh, Far Sector from DC's uh, Young Animal imprint. We're going over Excalibur from Marvel Comics, The Undiscovered Country uh, from Image Comics, The Tales from the Dark Universe, Blackest Night from DC, and then Marauders, also from Marvel Comics. And we have uh, an interview from the uh, Denver Pop Culture Con with uh, Rush Richards. Uh, he uh, has himself a set of books for the uh, Secret Lives of Ewoks. And we're going to interview with him from the uh, Pop Culture Con this last summer. That will run at the end of this episode. Um, other than that, you want to do a little bit of news there, Josh? Sure. I do have some news. You okay. have some news? I have a little bit, yeah. So, in movie news, Joker has passed the $1 billion mark at the box office. I don't, I don't really consider it a uh, comic book movie, but it is. Um, it's being called one, anyway. It's not really a Batman movie. Yeah, that's a little bit of a double-edged sword, though, because, you know, I mean, that, that was the fear for Joker, was that, like, this would come in, and if it was successful, all of a sudden now it'll make, like, Fan confusion or movie fan confusion with what they're moving forward with the Joker with. So I, I guess we'll see what the future says. I, I, I think it's, it's you take out the scene where the the Waynes spoiler alert get shot in the the uh, alley and then change the names of you know Bruce's dad. Then it just uh, Tom, like Thomas's name. Then it wouldn't be there would be absolutely no connection whatsoever. It would just be like a movie about like a crazy psychopath. Hmm. This is true. I, I think I've discussed with you on this. I'm sorry, I don't want to like take up too much time, but I, I think you could actually fold him into the regular movie canon and still be fine if Warner Brothers actually wanted to do that with the idea that he inspires the Leto Joker. And when Leto Joker meets the Walking Phoenix Joker, it's you know one of those times where you meet your hero and you find out, like, this guy can't even do basic math. Like, <laughs> I'm going to be the Joker. And so we see, like the inspiration for him, and then we could have Leto show up. I'm sorry, not Leto, but uh, Joaquin show up later after he's educated himself and be a more traditional Joker. I don't want that, but that's a way that they can both exist in the same universe, is that you have people who are inspired by the Joker who tried to replace him. Yeah, I don't know if there's even any talk of Leto. I think he's just done. Man, so. the, the only talk is contractual talk. He has... You know, a contract that he has to play the Joker again somewhere. Whether or not they'll let him out that or 
whatnot. Who knows? Yeah, it may turn into one of those things where they use him for something else altogether, as far as uh, movies concerned. But yeah, he's supposed to have. I guess the original contract was for two films. I guess whatever that means. Um, speaking of Batman movie news, um, Robert Pattinson's suit in the new The Batman movie is supposed to be blue and gray, like from that era of Batman in the comics, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm sure it'll still be like a techno type suit, but like as the color scheme, yeah, Batman 66, that's my jam. So give him, give him the classic colors. It's cool. Nah, I... Worse, worse for me. It's it's fine to have some color in the Batman. He's, he's been all black for too long on film. <laughs> um, so Catwoman will be played by Zoe Kravitz. Penguin is supposed to be Colin Farrell. Um, Two Face is supposed to make an appearance. Riddler is supposed to be played by who did we? We talked about this last night on the other yeah, and I don't remember that kid's name. Um, and Alfred will be played by Andy Serkis. So it's kind of a starting to take shape early on. It's a whole lot of odd choices, but... I don't know. I think Circo would be a good, good enough Alfred. I mean, the dude's got an accent anyway, and we don't see his face unless he's claw, so it's like a brand new person. I mean, with Colin Farrell being the penguin, I guess they're going to go instead of the... Because there's always been two kinds of penguin. There's either like the, the mobster-ish, like gangster kind of penguin then there's like the creepy weird penguin so it's like kind of um, even the tv series like the batman 66 stuff he was still like kind of gangster in the movies whenever a, a tim burton did him it was like a mix of the mix the only like real like suit and tie gangster type came from gotham and the tv series gotham because in the comic books even he's a gangster the entire time he just is a bulbous penguin looking man not necessarily the flippers. I mean, the flippers came from a movie, but as a thing, like the Gotham Penguin became so popular, and like that guy's a good actor, and like he does, he held that show together for every season they've had. So there's that. But other than that, I don't, I don't necessarily remember another uh, sexy guy penguin. So that's weird to me. But whatever. Well, there's makeup. You don't have to always be that way. No, I mean that's true. I mean we've seen. Plenty, I mean, what's, uh, Vice that was Christian Bell, is that right? And, like, he looks amazing, and the makeup is great. So I guess maybe Colin Farrell will get the makeup treatment, and he'll get the, uh, Chaney look, and we'll get a penguin out of it. Yeah, possibly. It just sounds like a weird casting when you say the name to it. Seems weird. Well, we'll see if it comes through, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the fear for me is still, you know, there's a lot of villains to have in one show. I mean, they're not even being able to hold together their universe right now. I don't know how they hold a movie together with as many characters. Well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, that's I think that that's what they're trying to, like, be this a, a launching start. But I think they've screwed it up so many times. We've talked about this so many times on this podcast and the other one that it just kind of, it's so, it's DC's just kind of crap the bed on, that they're just a bunch of just independent movies. They don't connect at all, so... If they're going to do that and do it that way, that's fine. Just quit trying to put, like, end of credit scenes in that, like, connect it to the next thing that's not going to happen, like, at uh, the end of Justice League. Like, the, like I don't think anything's going to come of that, so. Well, at this point in the game, no, but I think they, at that point, they thought it was. But since then, yeah. 
clearly that's not worked out so good. Anything else? Um, Liam Neeson's supposed to return to Star Wars universe. Um, quite possibly the the uh, Obi Wan TV show. Seen Force ghosted up a little bit. Yeah. Maybe some flashbacks when he's training a, a de-aged young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, it's possible. That'd be kind of cool. And then uh, Iron Man 3 has officially been listed as a Christmas movie on the Disney Plus site. So if there was any confusion, whether it was or wasn't, it is now, according to Disney. So, Like it's classified as a Disney movie or it's going to come out? I'm sorry, not no. Disney, Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Or is it just going to be available during Christmas? If you if you look under the Christmas movie category on Disney Plus, it the holiday part it shows up. Oh, so. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't remember it being Christmas in the movie either. I, I never even crossed my mind. So um, sweet. And then, I, Mike, I didn't get to. I've only seen the first half of the first episode of The Mandalorian, but I know you have. You guys both watched it. We, we did get to see the first episode. I haven't seen the second one personally. No, I haven't seen the second one either. But so far, so good. I think it's great. Yeah. So. I, I do think David Filoni is probably the way that Star Wars should go from here. Um, I mean, if I was going to criticize, one of the things that seems like Filoni does a lot, aside from... He fanboys it up a little bit with having a lot of returning aliens and things that you recognize that are a little too on the nose. But he tends to take a while to get his story rolling. But once it does, it's out of sight. So I, I think it's in good hands there. And having John Favreau's direct the episode. No, it's the other way around. John Favreau wrote the whole thing. Oh. Yeah. I thought he directed and it was... Uh... Favreau's the mastermind. He did everything. Like He wrote all of it. And then he has, he has like four different directors that did, did the entire season. They split it up. Was Filoni then just the one, producer? He's one of the directors, I think. Hmm. So he... Um, Maybe I misunderstood things. I don't know. It felt more like Filoni than it did like Fabros, but... So, but I mean, um, the directors are, well, Deborah Chow, Rick Fumiyawa, yeah, Dave Filoni, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Taika Waititi. So Dave's only doing two episodes. So that's the most anybody's doing is two. Bryce Dallas Howard. Seriously? Yep, she's doing Yep. Wow, that's crazy. But it's written by Favreau, and he's like the main. Okay, so I, I got things cr- mixed up, I guess. Yeah, he's the, cre- the only the, the second listing of writer right bo- below Favreau is George Lucas, So, and I think that's only because of creational characters. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, okay. In that case, then... Then it's Fabros's thing, and it, yeah, it, it looks good. Um, I guess I can't make that criticism, but it is. It does have a lot of reused characters in ways that, like, they get at me a little bit. But ultimately, if that's what I can complain about, that's pretty good. You know, so. I just thought, like, especially, I mean, Fab, anything Fabro touches, I think, turns to gold. In my opinion, I, I, the, to me, the guy could do no wrong. I think he's amazing, but uh. With him writing and executive producing it, it kind of leaves it like it. Regard as far as TV shows go, you can have different people direct different episodes like that. That shows that in like the WB stuff. Oh yeah, as far as the thing, once there's a production team doing stuff, like the director's just there to say cut or let's try again. It's not. I mean, well, I I think for me, like the important thing is to have a cohesive 
like plot that you're going for. Know, sure. Knowing what you want from the entire season, I think it's so important. And it's one of those things that we're seeing in like the new trilogy. It, it feels it's lacking. They definitely didn't begin the first film knowing where they were going with all three films. And I think that's really important with the show. So I think The Mandalorian probably... That's that's the nice thing, is if you have somebody like Fabros who knows what he wants, you're probably going to get a better product. I mean, with, and with all the guest appearances, too, it's just like all these people who've been fanboys for decades, like, showing up, like Brian Pusain, and then uh, Nick Nolte, and... I mean, they're, they're all over the place. Like, I can't even... I, d- I didn't recognize Nolte. I actually thought that was Warwick Davis. So, oh, crazy. Yeah. Look at the guy in the... Like the I have spoken guy. Like, I thought for sure that was Wicked, but now it's, it's Nick Nolte. Yeah. It's crazy. And Pasein's the taxi driver. And yeah. Like it's Carl like. Weathers is the, uh, is the uh, dude hiring a bounty hunter. That's, I mean, if you don't know who Carl Weathers is, it's Action Jackson or... Apollo. Apollo, so you should know who that is, or he's the other guy that dies in a Predator, you know, the cool one. They're all cool in Predator. What do you mean the other guy? Like, there's only one other one. There's like no, everybody dies except for a, one guy. He's like he's the other guy that convinced Dutch to join to do it in the first place. He wears the hat. Carl Weathers is awesome. That dude's amazing. Comedy wise, he he's Chubbs from Happy Gilmore. That might be more our audience speed, maybe. And he also played for the Oakland Raiders. Which is also cool. Anyway, that dude's awesome. But either way, good show. I, I don't know if it's a seller for Disney Plus yet. It seems to be working for people. People love it. They think it's fantastic. Every, like, people are just glowing about it, especially, like, the baby. They keep calling it a baby Yoda, but whatever. Oh, spoiler. Whatever race he is. Oh, yeah, whatever that race is, like... Yeah, if you haven't seen the memes online already, that's your own fault. Oh. There are so many pictures on the internet right now. It's going to be everybody's favorite Christmas gift next year. Guarantee it. If we don't see them here in another month, get on that, toy companies. It'll happen. It'll be plush dolls oh, yeah. galore. The Porgs have been replaced. So my Thank thing is, God. is my, my thing is, if they're going to do original, like, Star Wars... TV shows, I would love to see like a dark cop drama, but with two Jedi. Because what I'm missing in Star Wars, and the one thing that the prequels had, the, the only thing the prequels had to me that like all the other ones haven't is that like there was so many Jedi. And I like the fact I want to go back to an era and see where there's multiple Jedi. And since they were like the police force of the galaxy, the peacekeepers of the galaxy, it would be, to me, it would be kind of cool to see a. Like a buddy cop drama type, you know, master and Padawan type TV show, like set on the outskirts of the galaxy somewhere. I think that would be a pretty rad show with just just new characters, like little this sprinkled in, little that sprinkled in. But that would be what I'd like to see instead of like, oh, let's do one about Obi Wan now. Let's do one about like just do something new and fresh. That's fine to me. I think that's what the Mandalorian's aiming at. I don't know if we'll get Jedi in there or not, but it would be pretty cool if we got a whole batch of. Lightsaber battles out in space would be pretty cool. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that for the TV side of things. Uh, one of the things that was really big uh, for me, like I'm not a huge fan of the prequel stuff, but I did have some friends that were new to the universe of Star Wars back during the prequels. And one of the things that, like I never 
personally thought that this was a thing, but they were like, they had their mind blown because they were like, oh, ladies can be Jedis? Like, that was something that they didn't know was a possibility, and I don't know why they never thought that, but that was something that the prequels actually did show. So, I mean, like, hey, you know, they beat it to Rey anyways, but regardless, like, that would be something they could build on anyways. If you had the buddy cop drama, you could really explore more, like, what kind of Jedis there are and how that works in the established lore of the universe. So it could be a really cool idea. Yeah. Well, speaking of TV stuff, um, so apparently Legendary TV... I like how you both of you look at me like you didn't know Legendary had TV. I didn't either. So Legendary Television, like Legendary Films, apparently is in works for some type of production of a Sin City TV series... Um, for Frank Miller's comic book Sin City adapted into a show. So I guess like the Watchmen treatments getting on HBO, maybe we're going to get a legendary television show for Sin City, I guess? Not you guys, there it is for sure. Well, they're talking with Rod, 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 Robert Rodriguez about doing production stuff for it, so if he's connected to it, I think it'll be fine. But I think it's the same mistake they made with the second movie, like you waited too damn long. Like, it's just been too long since the movie to try to recapture that. And if you're just going to retell the movie, then I guess okay. Because there's a lot of pieces you could do more of, but... Like, as a thing, I didn't realize Legendary had a TV division. So I think that's cool. Sin City? Okay. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I mean, having Robert Rodriguez work on it is a great idea. I mean, he was really instrumental, I think, for the film's success, the first one anyways. Oh yeah, for sure. But I mean, the other one that was really big was, of course, getting... Uh, Rooney. Um, gosh. Mickey Rourke? Mickey Rourke, yes. Okay. Well, I got Mickey Rooney in my mind. Different totally guy. different guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Would have been a totally different spin on that story. A lot funnier, I hope. Well, maybe. Maybe. You're just sad, whatever. Well, because of the early success of the uh, Watchmen TV show that's going on right now, it's going to be a hard R-rated animated show. Um, the only reason I didn't like cover on it is because... I, you know, I don't know actually why I was going through, I was going through on my cold medicine that I'm <laughs> having take gallons of today, like right. <clears throat> reading news and none of it made any sense to me. So that's probably why, but yeah, I read all about it. So, so I guess we'll see when that happens, what it is, but it's going to serve as a prequel to the original show well, that we get all the characters people like. So we'll see, but animated mm-hmm. and on a hard R that sounds pretty interesting. I guess we'll see. I mean, Sin City makes sense for that because it was gritty in the first place. Back when it first happened, I mean, it was like a major mark in comics. Like, just like, like almost everything else Frank Miller did back in the day. Right. But he's also terrible with anything Hollywood, so. But Rodriguez is great. So if you have one and the other, I mean, hopefully two things balance themselves out and it'll be fine. But I mean, animated makes it a lot cheaper. You can do a lot more stuff with it, too. So I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan right now of HBO Watchmen, but. The first episode just didn't make any sense to me, and I haven't really bothered to go back to it, so that might be my fault. Um, as far as comic book stuff, so the Leviathan Event Leviathan series ended, um, and apparently here coming in February, we're going to have a batch of series of spin out of that. So the uh, cliffhanger from Leviathan is going to lead forward to more stuff. Um, so I guess we'll see what happens with that. That's a, still several months away as a thing, so... Um, we're also supposed to be getting a pretty big reveal in Harley Poison Ivy number six. 
Uh, if you guys didn't read Heroes in Crisis, we've had a major change to Poison Ivy, and up until this point, we haven't really answered how it's a thing. Um, apparently, number six is supposed to do something about that with this Harley Poison Ivy miniseries, which is the last issue of the run. So that guy should be out, I think, January. But it's supposed to be a pretty big deal in explaining this whole how she is what she is now. So that should be neat. Uh, we're also going to get another shift in action comics, which, because the write-ups in the preview catalog, they already spoiled issue 18 of Superman. So this, however, is something more to do with the clash of the Legion of Doom and Leviathan. So apparently that's going to take place in action comics uh, 1020. So this whole Leviathan thing that's happening, which is very... If you guys ever read... Uh, this would be back in the 90s. They did a series called Checkmate. And this has a lot of threads from that, just in the new universe. And Legion of Doom, like, that's our main supervillains, like, classic style. So it'll be those two organizations running into each other, and uh, that should be interesting. Uh, one more little bit of comic book stuff, and then we move on to comic book stuff. <laughs> no? Just me? Okay, whatever. Uh, Trivics number 25 uh, maybe the end of the series. I don't actually know if they solicited it being the end yet or not, but according to the, uh, the, uh, writers on there, Jin Yun Yang and, uh, Don Mora, issue 25 is going to have a pick a path ending for the readers, where you basically get to decide your own ending as choices in the book. So that's crazy, because we haven't seen that in a while. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Uh, that's how they describe it. It's a pick a path type ending. So I'd be surprised if it wasn't the end of the series. It's only one of the um, new era of heroes that's still running, really, as a book. I mean, everything else has stopped. So I guess we'll see what happens with that. Team-wise, they're interesting characters, and none of them were, like, really super new. They were, you know, Plastic Man, Mr. Terrific, Phantom Girl. I mean, Adam Strange was probably the weirdest one because he hadn't really been in regular DC continuity. So... But as a thing, Metamorpho was the other one that was the main character. Yeah, Metamorpho. So I guess we'll see if 25 ones will be in the final issue, but as a pick-a-path ending, that should be kind of cool, just because we haven't seen it in a while. I think that'll be I think that'll be cool because of what it's supposed to be. The book's been good, too. As far as the series, it's, it's a very good DC Fantastic Four. It's awesome. I liked it a lot, actually. Anyhow, um... So you'll move on to books. Rob, do you want to... Uh, did we pick an order earlier? I don't know uh, if we did or not. You said the titles, but I don't know uh, if that was really an okay. order. Okay. Well, we... Do you want to... Do you want to... Well, let's go and start... You want to start with uh, Excalibur? Sure. So we're starting with the writer, which is Tatini Howard. And then we have the artist, which is Marcus Toe. Pretty, pretty decent. So a lot of things have happened with the X-Men to get us to this point. Biggest things are House and Power of X... In House and Power of X, we revealed a lot of different little steps. But one of the biggest things that's probably the most important is that Krotoa, the living island, has become its own self-sufficient nation that is trying to get recognized by the entire world as a, a independent nation. And there's some places that are friendly with them, and there's some places that are not friendly with them. And the main way that they're doing this is by having Krotoa make certain types of um, pharmaceuticals that have incredible benefits to humans. The trade-off is that each place will be able to put up a Kurotoro kind of portal 
which will lead directly to the island. The portals only allow in people with X-Gene, so mutants. Along with that, there's this big call for everyone who's a mutant to come to Croatoa. And so there's a lot of characters that are kind of leaving their life behind. Uh, one of the big changes in this book is going to be about Betsy Bardock, so a character that most of us know as Psylocke. A little bit before this, during the Hunt for Wolverine stuff, Betsy actually wound up remaking her body through some cosmic kind of shenanigans. In doing so, we wound up having Betsy having her original British body. But we also have the the assassin character, who is the Asian body of Psylocke, that's been running around for a while as a separate entity entirely. Both of them seem to actually share Psylocke's special abilities, which is, you know, the extra telepathy. The Psyblades. And and the Psyblade. Yeah. yeah. Telepathy. Telepathy. Yeah, I I said it very well, very educatedly. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Betsy's dealing with a lot of just changes, because she's been in this other body for so long, she doesn't really know exactly how to react in her real body anymore, or how you know she fits into the rest of the world. And so she's being called to go to Croatoa, and is finally kind of making her decision to go there. What we see at the very beginning of this book, however, is from the magical realm that the Britain Corps kind of protects. The other world. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in the other world, we have straight up Camelot, and evidently King Arthur. And there's a little bit of like, I'd say world building that I'm not really familiar with for the Captain Britain Corps. Because I remember there being a Merlin, and I remember there being Rome, and they were really big in the control of the Captain Britain Corps. I don't actually remember Morgan Fay or King Arthur ever being really big parts of it, but. I don't, you know, I, I have to kind of throw that into maybe my ignorance of Captain Britain. I don't know. But Morgan Le Fay is trying to keep Camelot in this other world realm safe. She has kind of this magic scrying pool that she uses to see what her adversaries are trying to do. And what we're finding out is that the pool is being kind of murkied, uh, muddied by Croatoa, kind of trying to grow into it. It seems like. It's, yeah, it's like all the plant flowers we've been seeing show up all over the place are showing up in her, in her viewing pool. And so she's willing to do anything to kind of get rid of this, this taint. And so she starts coming up with this idea that mutants are like some kind of half-madge, something that's sort of magic but not really, and that they need to die so that she can continue to fight her war in Outworld, her out- Outer World, not Outworld, not for Mortal Kombat at this time. Similar thing, not the same thing. Yeah. But so in the midst of that, we see Betsy deciding she's going to be leaving England, and so we see her kind of bidding farewell to her brother, Brian, who is the Captain Britain, and his wife, Megan. And she's kind of like giving away her stuff or whatever, and you know we we have a little bit of time with how the two relate to each other before she makes it to Croatoa, and we find like everybody's happy in Croatoaville. It's a big party all the time. Welcome all of our mutant friends here. And that's when we encounter Apocalypse. And Apocalypse in this particular issue has a whole different costume with robes and stuff, 
And evidently, he's decided, like, fully he's going to be just a part of the island, and he's given up his slave name, I guess. So he's not going to be called Apocalypse or Ebensor anymore. Instead, he'll be called Made-Up Mutant Language Letter A. So, like, Prince. Yeah. Which they make a big deal of, like, that it's funky, and people are like, I'm not going to call you that, that's weird. But, like, everybody knows this language now. Like, as soon as you get here, you are indoctrinated with this language. So they all can say it. They just don't. And it's probably because he's Apocalypse. Well, they want you to use the trading cards that decipher the word, I think. Because if you, if you bought X-Men number one, and your store participated in the um, kickoff party, I guess, you got a pack of trading cards that came with number one that was basically just images of the, the covers with the character roster on the back, and then an extra card that was like, your deciphering tool. Which I'd be surprised if someone hasn't already built an app. Because I'm sure they someone has. But like as a thing, I, I assume they want you to decipher it. But I guess I really haven't looked at the card, so I don't really know if that weird A is on the card or not. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it's odd. But he's got like his own little assistants with him and stuff. And everybody seems to be like, oh, hey, it's cool, Apocalypse. The only one who has any common sense in this case is Gambit, who's kind of like, mm, I don't know if I trust that guy, which makes sense, because Gambit has a lot of reason to not trust Apocalypse's new benevolent turn. One of the things we discovered in this is that Apocalypse has, you know, like his own little assistants, but evidently Apocalypse is all about magic, which I don't know where that came from, but it's a thing now, I guess. And he's trying to get this portal to open up that's been locked the whole time, and he's using magical crystals and stuff to try to open the portal. And when he gets near it, it starts to break. But, like, we don't know exactly what the meaning behind any of that is, except for that the crystals have something to do with magic, and magic has something to do with this portal not opening. My assumption is that that's the portal that leads to the other world. Well, yeah, they they talk about that a little bit later, basically. They put up a... What he's encountering is some type of shield that's on the other side, like a barrier on the other side of the access point, which is why it doesn't open up the same way the other ones do. Like, kind of like, think Stargate, and whenever they put up a metal shield on their side to kill you if you jump through it. If that doesn't help at all, no? Okay. Yeah, it's a barrier that's been put up by the other side. Who did it, though? Meh, no one knows. Well, we're reintroduced to Morgan Le Fay again with a bunch of uh, British guys, or British people, I should say, because there's like ladies and stuff here, too. But they're trying to harvest magic from Morgan Le Fay's side. And what we find out is that Morgan Le Fay is going to now charge anyone who has magical abilities that are trying to utilize the Outer World to go and kill mutants for her. Or she's going to kill them and take their magic. So yay. She's a bad lady. Whether she's in DC or in Marvel, she's a bad lady. But back on Croatoa, we start to have a little bit of dialogue between Betsy and the the other body, which will now be called Psylocke. But immediately that's broken up with uh, Jubilee walking around with her baby looking for a drink. Like, hard drink. Yeah. It's a little weird. Yeah. And then we get uh, Golden Ball, or Fabio, who is now one to go by the name Egg, which there's a very complicated way that Egg is involved in regenerating all manner of mutants. We're not going to go into that right now, but yeah, Golden Ball actually has a little bit more of a storyline, and he got a name that is a little less ridiculous. 
I don't know, egg is pretty ridiculous too, but... Yeah, better than golden balls. Yeah, that's true. However, it's not as funny. No, not nearly as funny. So. And then we're introduced to a character that you have to be an old school fan to really know, which is Betsy Bardock's other brother, James Bardock. A.K.A. probably like one of the most dangerous mutants to be on the planet. He can just adjust reality by pulling cosmic threads. Uh, cosmic cosmic threads. Yes. Yeah. He can basically do anything he wants because reality doesn't matter to him. So why bring him back? I guess that's a question for the end of the book. Either way, he's in there just being a giant hoe, basically messing up all of the contaminating, all the egg things for any other person who's going to be regenerated. And he's acting the exact same way he normally would have, like nothing really matters to him. The only thing missing is the top hat and the baby diaper. Yeah. He gets the baby diaper a little bit. But, uh, yeah. Either way, Egg wants him to be reined in. Betsy eventually does. Basically tells him, like, you're going to have to go see your brother Brian. And James is like, nah, he's not a mutant. We don't need to see him. And she kind of is like, no, you're going to have to. But before anything can happen from there, Apocalypse shows up and he's like, you know what I like? Magic. I bet you could answer some questions about magic for me. Your brother likes magic. He's Captain Britain. Just basically just magic people, yeah. So we pop over to Captain Britain, find out there's some kind of disturbance in the outer world, and so he's suiting up for Captain Britain, he's going to go over there. Now, this is another thing that kind of threw me off, because originally Captain Britain had this medallion, and the medallion was super important to the Captain Britain story. Over time, that medallion has become so unimportant that I don't think they even bother with it anymore. So Not in a while. I mean, he yeah. doesn't sport it the way he used to back in the old days when he had the mask. Not the Captain America suit. The whole Union Jack-looking yeah. thing. So, like Space Dice, now that necklace is important again. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, and we also find another disturbing feature, which is now evidently all X-Men clothing are made by Krotoa, and so they can just be wheeled into whatever you want. Magic costumes. You're wearing basically a plant or a piece of Krotoa on you at all time. It's, just, it's weird, but we don't talk about it, so we're just moving on. We then encounter... Uh, okay, so Captain Britain and Betsy Bardock decide they're going to go find out what's going on in the outer world, and so they travel over there and immediately run into Morgan Fay. So from there, we jump back to Krotoa with Gambit and Rogue, and find Apocalypse, and he's like, you know what? I like magic. I bet Rogue can help me figure out how to use these crystals and stuff, because magic. <laughs> this is pretty weird. And they, of course, change into their costume, and Gambit's like, you know what? I don't really think that this is a good idea. Helping Apocalypse is probably, probably no bueno. And Rogue's like, no, he changed his name to A. It's fine. Everybody seems to forget that Apocalypse made him deaf yeah. at one point. Hmm. And so they come up with this idea that she's going to try to use her mutant power to absorb energy, mutant energy usually, on this barrier to kind of break this magical thing down. Once again, we back, jump back over to the Captain Britain storyline with Morgan Le Fay. And uh, Psylocke and Captain Britain are kind of battling Morgan Le Fay. What we realize is Morgan is going to try to transform Captain Britain into her 
new Dark Knight, since she has control of the Captain Britain Corps. Strangely enough, we don't see any other Captain Britain Corps members, which I don't know if they did away with that over time or what. But as he's becoming transformed into, for lack of a better word, like a, a Dark Knight for uh, Morgan Le Fay, Captain Britain's like, oh, I need you to really hold on to this, and like keeps jamming the Captain Britain necklace or amulet into Betsy's hand, which ultimately she winds up taking. And as we finally see Brian succumb to becoming this, this Dark Knight, Betsy manages to escape with the amulet. At the same time, Rogue touches both of the little column things at the portal, using her mutant-absorbing power, and basically becomes Snow White. She gets wrapped up in a weird <laughs> crystalline thing with flowers growing around it, passes out. Gambit's like, I don't know what's going on. She's in a crystal now. Betsy winds up eventually being thrown, after putting on the amulet, being thrown out onto Kroatoa by the portal. And she is now going to be our new Captain Britain with her Psy Sword. And we kind of end it with her being like, what the heck happened to Rogue? There is a little like wrap-up at the end of the book where we see one of the sorcerer ladies from earlier in the story who evidently took... Like, you need to kill mutants and stuff, as I need to kill other magic users. And so she's just been killing other magic people to power up crystals like the ones that Apocalypse had earlier. So that I guess she can start waging a, a war on mutants in London as a part of the side story. Either way, that is that is the wrap-up of the book with the extra little bit at the end. So, uh, I guess, like, in closing, Excalibur is definitely the oddest of the six launch titles. It focuses a lot more on magic and kind of whimsy and a lot on the Captain Britain side of things. It is interesting to see them take Psylocke in the, or I'm sorry, Betsy Bardock in a different direction because once we get to X-Force, we'll have Psylocke. Right, so we have both running around totally. doing different things yeah. all together. Um, this has the same problem that I would say most of the new launch titles have. It's that the the tone of the book doesn't really fit. Lots of characters have lots of dialogue that just doesn't fit. Characters have relations to each other that don't really make a lot of sense. And I don't know if it's bad editing, or the knowledge of the writer isn't great, or if this is supposed to be a whole different timeline. Um, me, personally... I think everything past a Power and House of X is a different timeline. I think it's all a different life of Maura McTaggart, and so a lot of this stuff I can kind of forgive. It's written well, if you think of it that way. Otherwise, there's a lot of little hang-ups that kind of keep throwing me off. Now, I can't say that I'm, like, the best knowledge person on Apocalypse, but I feel like I have a lot of knowledge, and I don't remember him ever being this focused or fixated on magic like, at all. The Captain Britain Corps, I thought I kind of understood it, but there's a lot of things I don't know. But, I mean, like, where's the rest of the Captain Britain Corps? Why is it just Brian? Yeah, before they had a whole court of, like, Captain Britons that were supposedly connected to all the different universes, so kind of like Spider-Verse, except Captain Britain Corps. And I don't know if that doesn't exist anymore, or if that was done away with. I don't even remember the last time we saw it, to be honest. It's been a while, so... 
it's been a minute. It really has. But um, the other thing is that's odd for me is that like everybody's so complacent to just trust Apocalypse, and that's weird. But um, Morgan Le Fay, I don't think has been a big issue in Marvel. And maybe she has. Maybe she's been in Doctor Strange. Maybe she was more connected to the Captain Britain universe than I knew. But like this is kind of the first that I really know of her as an important figure in that story. So it's kind of, I don't know. There's a lot of things that throw me off. Um. I'd probably rate it as about a three and a half. Artwork's great for it. Storyline is good. Um, if this is not supposed to be a continuation of the universe that we've been in, I can I can accept a lot of the issues. If not, it's kind of a bad reboot. So it's I don't know. It's very divided for me. But I'd say yeah, probably three and a half. All right, uh, Josh. What do you think about that book? Um, I've been out of the X universe for a while. I'm slowly coming, just reacquainting myself. I love Gambit and I love Rogue. Um, Captain Britain stuff has really always been cool to me. I love the Arthurian stuff that's thrown in there. So I'll be curious as to where to go with it. Um, like being a three, three and a half ish on the book, just because I was actually kind of disappointed on the art at some points like sometimes it's really good and then I, I, like it's not sometimes it's real weak it was like there's certain parts that are kind of funky and some parts that aren't um well we'll see i mean i think the making betsy betsy braddock and like psylocke different completely different things now like i the way that they did that i thought was odd yeah it, it really is uh, the other odd thing is that there's a whole mention in there about Rogue just being like, no, I'm not going to use the power dampener because I don't want to have, like, relations with you, so, uh, you know, Gambit, right now, which is, it's also weird. She's like, I'm not going to wear it on the island and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'm curious. It's a cool book. Like, leading into the other X book we're going to talk about tonight, like, they both have cool ideas. Like, the, the, the living islands and you know like reading about the different islands and how there's another island that like it so they separated from each other and at certain points they like at one point they like touch each other and like the islands actually like have sex and it's like a whole weird thing but we'll see what goes on i mean the apocalypse thing is 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 weird like every just like is letting him stand around in his like his bathrobe just like my like Oh, I'm just gonna play with power crystals all day. Nobody cares. I just like have been like one of the biggest ex villains of all time for like like whatever. Just like it, nobody, just nobody cares. It's kind of weird to me, but whatever. Huh? Um, as far as score, yeah, you know, I I fall suit three and a half. Suits. I I didn't mind the art. Like I liked it just fine. I do dig the idea of having two Psylocks. I mean, that's cool. If we're not gonna call one that, then that's fine. Whatever. Well, that's the weird thing. It's not discussed in this book, but she's going to be Betsy Bardock, and the other one's going to be called Psylocke. Right. So. That's why she tells people to call her Betsy. Until she's Captain Britain, and now we're called Captain Britain. Which is fine, whatever. And I don't know, part of the way things are written, I kind of wonder if it's because the idea there is supposed to be for new people. And like even in the, even in the X-Men, which I know this is not the same book at all, but in X-Men, there's, like, some of the way they talk to each other seems off, but I think it's more for people that have never read, 
Like if you didn't know who Rachel's great or Rachel's Rachel Summers was, if you didn't know who Cable was, if you didn't know how they connected to Cyclops and to Jean Grey, then that's why they're talking to each other that way. So I wonder if part of this is written that way because of that too. And so we see it because, you know, we're more about it and it's not actually a new starting point like off fresh off the boat. So maybe it's different for other people. But it is weirder than the other books. And Excalibur always has been. I mean, as far as classic Excalibur, we're talking Alice in Wonderland, like, nonsense going on. It was still fun. But it was the weirdest of the X books, even back in, back in back in the 90s. So, I mean, there's that. But yeah, I give it three and a half also. Like, uh, I thought it was decent. I liked it. It's good stuff. Yeah, I, I'd definitely say there's, there's more good than bad. But it still has some oddness. All right, um, so let's go ahead and move on to Tales of the Dark Universe, the uh, Black Lantern, or Blackest Night, sorry, Blackest Night. All right, so if you're not familiar with the Dark Multiverse stuff, um, Tales of the Dark Multiverse stuff, it's kind of an Elseworlds-esque um, like run they're doing. They've done Death of Superman, they've done uh, Batman Nightfall, Nightfall and yep. they're doing Blackest Night now, and then they're, um, they're doing... What's next? Infinity Crisis next. Yep. Um, it's written by Seely, um, pencils by Kyle Hotz. It it's basically like a well, it's going to be a sped up version because it's only it's a one shot. So, but it's the Blackest Night story, but it takes place in a another part of the multiverse where Sinestro never shares the power of the White Lantern with the rest of the the Color Core. And he keeps it for himself. And then the Black Lanterns basically overtake and kill everybody but him. And even kind of him because he becomes half White Lantern, half Black Lantern. And um, the only person still alive in this is Dove. Oh, and Lobo. So <laughs> Oh, you just... And, oh, and, and, and Lobo. Lobo. Yeah. So it, um, Lobo basically gets sent to Earth to find Dove. For someone, you're not sh- sure who, and it's just Lobo just tearing the crap out of people, and um, Cyborg's in there, like most of the Titans, um, and Lobo does what Lobo does, and he just like destroys people. He got he gets bit at one point and starts to become a Black Lantern, but he's like, oh yeah, I have healing powers, so that doesn't work on me, and it's just like, whoops, connection severed, that doesn't work, and then like, at one point... Like, the Black Lantern version of Beast Boy, like, steps on him and, like, pops his eyeball out and, like... It's pretty gross, yeah. He's like, whoop, and it just fixes itself. It's pretty funny. Um, And then Sinestro shows up in his weird half-and-half, like, half-life, half-death lantern thing and um, is like, I'm here to help, but I'm not here to help because I can do this, but I can't really do this. And, um... Lobo's like, well, I'm supposed to take her to this guy that hired me, so whatever, I'm taking her. And You want to tag along, you can. Yeah, so he does. So they hop on Ramona, which is uh, Lobo's motorcycle space bike thing, and uh, they take off into the cosmos to get Dove somewhere where she needs to be that's somewhere safe yeah. or something. No, I mean, they don't really lead into it. And... uh as they fly through space, um, their emotions that they hold 
make them basically a tracking device for the Black Lanterns, because the Black Lanterns feed off any kind of emotion, which if you know anything about the Lantern, any of the Lantern cores, they're all a spectrum, they're, they're all the, from the emotional spectrum. So, they're being tailed slowly. Um, they come upon, well, they go through a crazy Thangarian graveyard, basically, like, Thangar, like, sends an entire army to Earth to try and stop the Black Lanterns, and they get annihilated, and... Pretty dark, pretty creepy. I mean, the, the, all these books have been kind of dark and creepy. Oh, yeah, for sure. But in a good way. Like, they're, they're well written. Um, so they get to the planet where they're supposed to go, and they come upon the uh, new gods. And, and the Furies and Big Barda. And... Well, Big Barda's part of the new gods. Uh, she's from Apocalypse, so, I mean, yes and no. She's part of the new gods. Whatever. <laughs> so, um, and the problem is that, like, the more powerful you are, is it is an individual, and since they're all new gods, that um, the 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 more powerful you are in for Black Lantern energy, black like death energy. So, Sinestro's like, I'm kind of having a hard time keeping these at bay. The White Lantern parts like weaker here, and Lobo's just going crazy. Like, trying to help out, and out of nowhere comes Mr. Miracle. Ah, uh, Scott Free. He's still alive. And he's like, alright, follow me, get in here, I have a plan. And he, like, goes into a room and locks it. It'll be a few hours before they can get through. And uh, he's like, so, you know, Bart has been crying and this and that, and, like, trying to trick me, but, you know, like, I know I have a way um, that I can fix all this, but I need... I need somebody... Dove's the person need to be able to channel this energy from the source wall, which is the Prometheian gods um, that have died, that like make up the end of the universe, basically in the DC universe. And like outside of that is creation energy, like energy of life. And he's gonna like funnel that energy back into the universe and cure everybody the Black Lantern disease. And so they're like, "All right, cool, let's go." And Lobo wasn't going to go because. Lobo's Lobo, he got paid, and he's like, well, I need to, like, take care of my investment, you know, because if, if everybody dies, then my money that you just paid me isn't any good, so I'm going to yeah. come and make sure that everybody like, does their thing. i got to have a place to spend this money, and if the money is no good because everyone's dead, then it doesn't matter. So, they take off, the four of them, and they head towards the source wall, with Lobo being the muscle, and... Sinestro not really doing anything because he can like kind of revive you, but then immediately kill you, and then revive you, and then immediately kill. Like it's a crazy torture thing. Yeah, he's able to re use the white power to basically revive the Black Lanterns, but then immediately afterwards the Black Ring starts taking them back over. So basically, just kills them over and over and over again when he does it. Right, it's really pretty messed up. So they get to the Source Wall, and um, at this point, because of the emotions that Lobo was feeling. For Dove, because she's so pure, right? Um, the lantern, the the black lanterns, like they find them, and now, you, I mean, you get the color guard, so everybody from the color guards there, the black lantern version of them, we got Atrocitus and Hal and et cetera, et cetera, but then you also have, um, the 
Necron's new host body, which is Darkseid. Oh, yeah. So Darkseid's got a... He's pretty powerful. So. Oh, yeah. He's the most powerful of all the new gods. I mean, he's Darkseid. So, and now he's infused with Necron power, and that's... Uh, Necron was the... Basically, the, the Black Lantern avatar, so... Yeah, as a thing, it's like the most powerful version of a Black Lantern you could ever have, mixed with... One, one of the most powerful beings in the DC Universe, yeah. Which I feel like the Anti-Monitor would be more powerful than Darkseid, but... Yeah. Yeah, he probably would be. He was he was one of the host things. The big problem is the Anti-Monitor is... He's made of antimatter, so he could have a lot of problems in the positive matter universe. I know that sounds crazy, but like... Yeah, he doesn't come around very often. It was a thing. But th this is much more bite-sized. It's easier to draw. Right. <laughs> That's true. So, as Lobo's protecting everybody, trying to keep them at bay while they channel this life energy, um, Black Lantern, Dark Side, Necron, like, obliterates Lobo into n nothingness except blood particles. He has to spray a blood on the, on the, in space. And, um... Sinestro, like salt and pepper Sinestro, can't really do much. And he fights off his daughter and Hal, but it's by resurrecting them and then having them die again, which is just god awful. As like a thing, I mean, it's a good power to be able to stop them in their tracks, but ultimately they return to what they were before that because he doesn't have the right kind of power for things. And well, then stuff starts to fall apart for the group. So. Um, as he cries and watches his daughter die again, um, Lobo shows back up and cuts off her head and he's like, oh yeah, I can do this thing where like I heal myself. Oh, and there's a bunch of me too. Cause all those blood particles, I can like make millions of clones of myself. And Apparently you only have to have one cell for Lobo to grow out of it. And it's up to him if he decides to do it. Yeah. That's something we did. I don't think any of us knew before. Yeah, that's definitely a new Lobo trick. It's awesome, but I don't think I was aware of it before that either. So it's basically like Wolverine sometimes. Like, there's been a time when there was only like one blood droplet of Wolverine left, and they like, he's still, oh, yeah. slowly grew back. And then he returned, he returned from the, the precipice of Oblivion a couple times, actually. But yeah, it wasn't like he grew a new Wolverine because he cut his finger. This is like straight up Lobo got turned into a spray of blood. Because that's how Darkseid figured out how to stop it, because he can't trick him over. And all that really did was turn all those sprays of blood into little Lobos. And they're not even, like, small ones. It's just, like, a whole herd of Lobo fighting everything. So Lobo versus the Black Lander Corps. It's kind of awesome, but it's definitely crazy. So then, like, he, Scott finally gets Dove hooked up to this device that's going to channel the energy. But what it come to find out that it's going to destroy all the current... Everything's going to start from scratch. Right. It's going, to, it's going to reboot the universe, meaning he's not going to get to see... Barda ever Barda again. Like every, everybody that existed will no longer exist. It's going to start from scratch. New universe. And then he's like, I can't handle that. And he chokes her. Until she dies. Yeah, it's kind of messed up. Like everybody falls apart then on themselves. And I don't necessarily think it was just going to restart the universe. I think it was going to wipe out the Black Lanterns, period. But 
that doesn't heal them. It doesn't fix them. It just obliviates them. So no, it reboots the entire universe. So it wipes everything out okay. and then starts everything from scratch. Which you wouldn't think would be that bad of a deal. I mean, he'd have to sacrifice himself and Dove and what's left of Sinestro and Lobo. But in theory, they no, should have been born that, again. They, they would have been alive still. Right. Everybody that was a Black Lantern would not. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying. So he's going to be, he's he's going to lose Barda. That was his point. Cause that's yeah. Why. That's the whole reason he has the turn. It's not because it restarts the universe. It's because it wipes out the Black Lanterns, period. So if you ever were a Black Lantern, it would wipe you out. It doesn't heal you. So the only people left in the universe would be people who were never affected. Right. So like him, Dove, Lobo, which apparently there could be a lot of. And maybe Sinestro, because he was half and half. But all the rest of them would just be wiped out. Because he chokes Dove and ruins the chance of saving the universe, Lobo loses his crap and just... uh murders him he's like that was she was pure she was amazing like she had no ulterior motives so i can't believe you did that and then sinestra's like wait there's still another chance there's still another another vessel that we can channel this energy it's lobo and so they channel this like life energy from outside the source wall through lobo and to restart the uniform universe destroying all the black lanterns and just creating life everywhere the only problem with that is all the life that's created is all life that resembles Lobo. So every being that's created has crazy red eyes and they all smoke cigars and they all hate everybody else and they all just want a war and they're all out for themselves. So it's just a, basically a giant Lobo universe universe where Lobo, everything is just like... Like all the different planets have different people, but the different planets hate each other because Lobo hates his own kind. Lobo hates everything yeah. except himself, so it's just like, it's just Lobo everything, which is hilarious. Like, this one wasn't as dark as the other ones were because it's so funny at the end. Like, I don't think that they meant it to be funny, but it is funny because it's just like, they show these, like, different beings on every planet and, like, like just random alien faces with like red eyes and smoking a cigar like it's just like so ridiculous and then i'm building statues of lobo as like the new god and i don't know i thought it was quite hilarious so there's well there's one more piece then too but we can leave that for it's 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 where sinestro winds up in the grand scheme of things which is where the tragedy is because oh well yeah i mean he tries to break through because it's it's a multiverse in the, the beginning it's like the guy his name is tempest Fujina. Oh yeah, the the uh, crypt keeper basically. And he like, he just seals off the exit from that dement that that multiverse plane. Like, he seals it off because like Sinestro wants out. Right, because he's stuck with a universe full of Lobo, and he's like the only thing that's different. And he technically was a failure, so he has his own failure to look at every single time he sees Lobo. He sees his own failure, and everybody's Lobo. I mean, granted, they don't all look like his face, but it's the personality that's the thing. Anyway, yeah, good stuff. Tim Seeley's awesome. <laughs> uh, Josh, a score for that book? Um, Story-wise, I'd probably give it a four, but art-wise, I'd give it like a two and a half. I feel like the art in it was pretty weak. Um, so, yeah. From the from just the pure craziness, hilarity of it, I give it a I give it a four in story. All right, Rob, any score for that book? You know, I, I give it a I give it a three and a half. It, it's actually it's a pretty interesting read. Lots of 
like interesting concepts of where things would go. And it is a fun end for the book. Uh, like Josh was saying, unfortunately, artwork could have been stronger. Uh, there's definitely times where this artist was the one to go with, but I, yeah, I could, I could have seen a different artist on it. <laughs> sure. Um, as a whole, I give it a three as well. And like you said, like there's some points where like hit the eyeball popping out, like the dude drew it great. All the different horror style versions of everybody, the blackest night looking stuff, great. But then there's other pieces that are not exactly his suit. I feel I feel like I've seen this artist do like Halloween horror style books, and that kind of makes sense because what they're trying to do. But there's a lot of technical things in the Green Lantern world too. So, hmm. well, I mean, the the big one for me is just Scott Free looks weird. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just that mask. I mean, how often do you really draw Scott Free? I mean. Not a lot. Yeah, probably not. Unless you're Miss Gerard, and then, you know, there's a whole Mr. Miracle series. But that's one dude drawing the whole thing. So, like, other than that, not very many people do. Like, not really. Um, Let's see. Well, from there, let's go ahead and move on to the Undiscovered Country. This is the uh, image book. It's issue one as well. It's written by Scott Snyder and Charles Soule, which is uh, kind of crazy considering. Um, both of them are popular Marvel slash DC artists. Reverse that Scott's DC and Charles Soule's Marvel. Or, sorry, writers. Is that what you were going to say, Rob? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, I meant writers. Um, artists by uh, Giuseppe... Uh, I don't know how to say his name. Kamkuli? Kamkuli, I think. Fantastic artist. Done a lot of Spider-Man. Um, and uh, Daniel Orleandi? Dini? Orlandini? I don't know how to say it. Sorry. Awesome art, though. Anyhow, uh, so Undiscovered Country, like, we open up and we're in the sky and we have this a little bit of exposition going on and we see this helicopter. And uh, as we close the helicopter, we jump inside of it and we meet our cast of characters. And uh, it's a batch of scientist types that are on this expedition. And uh, as the story goes on, we wind up finding out two of them are brother and sister. And uh, a couple of the other ones work for pharmaceutical companies that don't get along with each other. How exactly or why exactly that's all happening, we don't entirely understand yet. But as we move, move farther forward through the book, we wind up finding out that uh, the place they're heading is the U.S. of A. And uh, the U.S. of A. has walled itself off from the regular world for the past 30-plus years, hasn't allowed anyone in or out, and hasn't had any contact with the outside world as of this whole 30 years. Um, as it turns out, the brother and sister, they are, their parents were in the U.S., and they had sent them outside the country just before this happened. So they haven't seen their parents for 30 years. And so the two of them have ulterior motives for what's going on. Uh, but the main problem is that as we go through the book, like it jumps between different time frames. Like In the very beginning of the book, we kind of meet our characters, and they go over what the world is like. And uh, in the process of them being worried whether they're going to get clearance into the U.S. or not, and whether the protective shield will be open or not. Um, once we get past that step, they were almost immediately followed by a rocket being shot at them, like a missile. And uh, we jump from there to the past to explain how we picked up our characters. And the first person we meet is Dr. Graves, and this is the uh, sister of the two. And she's busy treating a patient um, for a disease that is a disease that ravages the world. And in the process of that, we get a sandstorm that happens that caused a problem for her with a bunch of the other uh, people in the area. So they, there's the diseases infected the world they're calling Sky. 
And basically, it makes you melt blue out of your eyes and your ears and your mouth hole and just kills the hell out of you. It's pretty disturbing. Um, and she's a leader in the field just uh, trying to figure out a way to crack it or fix it. Uh, so, scientist, doctor-style stuff. Um, anyway, in the process of what's going on, um, she's treating this one particular patient, and he's in rough shape. And the dust storm starts, and this whole batch of other, like, hobo-type people steal the cover that they, she had for her patients and run off with it. Uh, apparently, part of the the disease can get into you through the dust storms or whatever. Uh, so while that's going on, all of a sudden we get joined by a man with an umbrella wearing a uh, face-like uh, breathing device. And he tells her he's, he's here to recruit her and uh, wants to take her on his helicopter to see some information she needs that has to do with the sky virus. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to take care of my patient. I don't care what your government want, what the government wants. Uh, he informs her that he's, that who he is. He's uh, Colonel Pavel. And uh, about that time, we see her patient die. So we see the uh, the full blue, bleedy, crazy. And uh, she's like, well, great. I have nothing else to do, so... She basically decides to join him. Um, and uh, from there, we move uh, back to the present, which is just after the rocket hit the, hit the aircraft, and they've crashed. Everybody seems to be okay. And so, like, group-wise, we have two different pharmaceutical leads whose names I don't really remember. We have a journalist, a historian, the doctor, Miss Dr. Graves, and then her brother, who's, like, the adventurer Graves. Um... And then the, the colonel, who's the draw, who's flying the plane, so like the military tactician. So there's a group of basically seven of them, if I remember right. And the historian is injured, like he's like got hurt. Everybody else seems to be fine. And uh, they decide they need to go for cover. The journalist pulls out her little drone and sends it out flying around, trying to capture the moment, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the, the aircraft is pretty damaged, but they're going to try to get away from it, not to cause problems. So we jump again back to the past, and we are joined in this nice-looking city, and we are hearing a message being played that's a message supposedly sent from the U.S., um, and it's been sent by this Dr. Sam Elgin, and he kind of looks, uh, I don't know, like Uncle Sam style. He has Uncle Sam beard, and if he was wearing a top hat, he'd straight up be Uncle Sam. In the message, he talks about how the U.S. has a cure for the sky disease, and if it's not treated, the entire world will fall within six months. And he's opening a passage for them to come to America to get the get the cure. And so the pharmaceutical companies want to go because, well, they're pharmaceutical companies. Of course, the doctor wants to go. She's been trying to battle this thing forever. Her brother wants to go, mostly because he broke into the U.S. once before and managed to get out. He didn't do very successfully. But he survived, and no one else has done that. And he's looking for their parents. He has no want need for the pharmace- pharmaceutical stuff, but, you know, he's an adventurer type. Anyhow, and of course the colonel, who does work for one of the companies, he's of the opinion that if they don't have someone go with them, they know something, that they'll never come back alive. And again, we haven't heard, in the rest of the world, no one's heard from the U.S. in these 30-plus years. So the world's very different. And, like, as a thing, like, how the world's changed, they're all very speculative of what the situation's like. Um, anyhow, so we move forward from the uh, crazy meeting room, and we return to the present. And a group of them 
saw a like a like a light signal up on top of this mountain that decided what must be a city, because where they were supposed to land, they're nowhere near. This rocket shot them down, and they didn't get to the city they were supposed to get to. So they decided to go to this light and see uh, if it is a town or an encampment. At least it'll be a place they can get in out of the weather and be supposedly safe, I guess. Because whoever shot at them, um, undoubtedly, eventually will come. And so as they're doing that, they get to the top of the hill and they find a old Zenith TV, like old school style, big box TV. And it was on, and then it turns off. Which is pretty questionable, because it basically tricked them to come up there, because all there are now is in the middle of a mountain with nothing around them. The, uh, the journalist informs everyone that you know her drone's been damaged from whatever, and so she can't make it fly. And so they kind of take a position, they try to look back and see how the, things are going with the helicopter. So they left the colonel, Colonel Pavel, they left with the helicopter. Because um, he's going to try to repair it, see what he can salvage, if he can get the radio to work, whatever. And then we get to see from the mountain this onslaught of cars coming to the helicopter. Very Mad Max-like, Thunderdome-style. Um, except there's also a giant snake being ridden and a giant sea land shark being ridden. It is crazy. And uh, these buffalo that uh, are not shaped correctly either. It's it's wild. Um one of the people in the group, this uh, man with elongated arms, basically wrapped in bandages like a mummy, rides up on one of the buffalo, and he starts talking to the colonel. And the colonel tells him, oh, we're supposed to be here, we were invited to be here, blah, 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 blah. Trying to explain the situation. And uh, it comes becomes pretty apparent they don't care. And all he really says to the colonel is that no American f- boots will touch our soil. Or no, no foreign boots will touch American soil. And the buffalo basically bites his feet off. Bloody mess style. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, of course, at that point, um, the Graves' brother-sister realize that they're not in a good place, and uh, all these people are going to do is come for them also. So, as they try to figure out where to go, of course, the mountain they're on, there's a small opening that leads to the other side, and so they go to the other side, and on the other side, there's even worse. A whole bunch more of the exact same group of people with crazy, like, city ships, I think, like, immortal weapons. And it's just, it's crazy Thunderdome. Like, think any of the, any of the movies of Mad Max when a whole city of uh, crazy dirt-dwelling, gas-wanting psychos show up. It's like that. It's crazy. And, of course, they've all decided as a group that they're screwed because they don't have enough weapons to do anything, and both sides of the mountain they're trapped from. Um, about that time, a man in a hood appears literally out of nowhere, and he tells him to come with him if he wants to live, and he's dressed very, like, Old Westy kind of, and he's got, you know, like a trench coat, like a button-up top, and they're like, why should we trust you? Of course, they draw the gun down on him, and then uh, he pulls open his button f- button front, his coat, coat front, and underneath he's got an American flag, and he tells them if they want to live, they need to come with him now. And so they go through this passage that has magically appeared. And uh, once we get on the other side, we find out why we didn't see it before, because it's got a giant rock that gets moved in order to hide the entrance. We get led inside, and we find this group of, like, refugee-looking people all living inside this mountain. And uh, he informs them of their group and lets them know that the other group wants nothing to do with them. And uh, he takes the graves with him, because uh, he recognizes them. And he takes them into their oval office, which is basically just a hollowed-out room in this cave, 
where we have this map on the wall that shows us how the U.S. is currently laid out and how the different factions have split it up. And he informs them that he's happy they're there because he needs somebody to help him save the U.S. And they're both like, no, no, we were invited. We were, we were sent a message. And uh, when we see him take off the headdress, we find out this is the man that sent the message, except he's got this crazy scar across his face, his hair is disheveled, his beard's not kept, and he informs him he never sent any message. Which is the crazy hook, because the same man they expected to meet for their, uh, I, I guess their liaison party or their... Uh, adventure party. I don't know. There's the, there's a word for it. But I can't remember what the word is. Is the same man that just saved them in the hills, and he knows nothing about it. Um, as far as the story, like I liked it a lot. There's a lot of dialogue, so trying to go through it this way is. What did you rough. say? But did you say what he says at the end though? Oh, the. Uh, but he's uh, it's Uncle Sam, and he says, "And I want you." Oh yeah, no, I did. I had mentioned that actually. Yeah, he tells him he needs them to help him save the U.S. And he's, well, it's Sam uh, Ellington, or what was his name? Sam, yeah, Ellington. And he wants them. And, like, he's posed Uncle Sam-style posed. So, like, pointing at you the whole nine yards. Awesome. Um, as far as, like, a book, I mean, I I was pretty pumped about this thing in the first place when I learned about it in San Diego. Just because the two writers on it are both really popular writers and both really good. Uh, Art-wise, Giuseppe's amazing. I think the dude's awesome. Um, and because of images I've seen, because of a presentation that was given in, at San Diego Comic-Con, I've seen other pictures of crazy things that at some point this book is going to have in it. And it's awesome. Um, Score-wise, I mean, I give it four and a half. Like, I think it's awesome. It was great. As far as characters, I mean, they're all still new characters, but just like Jurassic Park, I mean, when you first meet all the characters, you don't know all their names. So, like, that's a process we're going to get into. Um, I was pretty surprised that, that Pavel went, at least we think he's dead. I mean, I don't know. The buffalo ate his feet. So messed up. Anyway, so I was like, for, as far as a book, I give it a four and a half. I, I like this style of alternative history, alternative world. So anyhow, yeah, it, I thought it was great. Uh, Josh, what did you think of the, uh, the Undiscovered Country? Well, at first I was, I was super into it. I was like really stoked that it was going to be, it was like the U.S. was going to be this crazy walled off like utopia kind of like futuristic thing and like whatever they were going to do. And then like it's it's worse off than the rest of the world once you get into it. And it's like, it's, a, it's another post-apocalyptic zombie kind of like cannibal weirdness thing. And I'm like, which doesn't make a lot of sense with the continuity of the book because... They have this crazy electromagnetic force field air wall that like defends the United States, but yet most everybody in it like doesn't have anything. So it's like it's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. Like somebody opened the wall long enough for them to get through in the helicopter and then close it and they get through, but then like it's just chaos inside there. So like it doesn't make a lot of like they show the wall on the outside of like there's like like gigantic gun barracks and like all sorts of things like that, like basically circle the entire nation. So a little weird on that, like continuity wise, I was like, that doesn't make any, that much sense to me, but I have a feeling that we're going to see the different factions inside the U S are very different. And some of them will have technology that is 
far surpassed what we see from the desert people. I don't which, know, though, because they show, like, they show the map, and they list them as, like, Codelands, The New People, Purple Mountain Kingdom, Tempest, Toasted, The Shining Sea, Knox, The Red Glare, and then there's, like, a bunch of, like, blacked-out areas of skulls that just, like, are uh, maybe bad places to go, I think. But it's, like, weird that, like, those are the blacked-off places. When they first fly over, they talk about, like, when they're first crossing the wall, it's just, like, a bunch of redwoods. So, like, they're just talking about the redwoods. Well, the forest they saw before the rocket happened. Yeah, but it, but when they show the map, like, that's pl- that's parts that are blacked off with, like, skulls on them. So, like, that didn't make any sense to me. And the map's also rudimentary. It's like somebody made it themselves, like, homemade style. I kind of think, like, Knox, I have a feeling it's going to be Fort Knox. Well, yeah, because that's... So, like, as a thing, I think different sections are going to have different amounts of technology, so to speak. Now, granted, the group we ran into at first clearly is not happy with anybody coming in and is this desert group which they had a desert they said the name of them but i don't remember what it was and i i feel like technology wise they don't have crazy cool technology but i mean one of the guys is riding a land shark dude that's freaking crazy and then the giant snake and the buffalo that are not like normal buffalo because they follow orders like dogs and then the crazy elongated man like it's it's nuts so I think a lot like think like Thunderdome, like you had the people in Thunderdome that had money and had power, and then you had everybody else. So I have a feeling it's going to be a lot like that. And whoever it is we saw in the video that was not Sam, but was Sam, he looked to be in a very different situation in the world. I mean, everything he had around him was very like expensive office, and he's dressed in like a three-piece suit. And so when we see this other Sam that has a scar across his face. That's a very different situation, too. So I have a feeling at some point we'll see that different parts of the U.S. are split up with different amounts of wealth, so to speak. So technology and stuff like that. I, I, I assume, because like I said, I've seen pictures, but I don't entirely understand context. So whether it's past, present, future, or outside the U.S., I have no idea. What's well, a cool idea. Like, the, like they divide the world into, like, Asia and... Like it's basically two provinces. Like they, it's like oh, the rest of the world outside Europe, of the US. Europe and yeah. Africa, and then like Asia and everywhere else. Kind of it was like it's basically two group, subgroups. Right. The rest of the world is divided. Yeah, divided different too. It's good. It'll it'll be good. The art's good. Like the story seems good. It flows. Like I'm excited. It seems it seems good. Like they score in there somewhere. I think like a four. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a very solid book. It's a very so, I mean, my only issue with it was, like, I, I, I expected something different. Like, going straight with the Mad Max stuff, it's like, oh, my gosh, just, like, right. regurgitation. Like, just do something different for once. Like, cool, it's a giant snake, but who knows? You know, like, whatever. Like, I don't know. The buffalo eating the guy's legs was kind of neat because, like, buffalo are supposed to be, like, herbivores, but. It was crazy. I don't, I don't think there's a normal buffalo. Best I can tell. Anyway. All right. Uh, Rob, what do you know about the uh, Undiscovered Country? Well, there's a lot to theorize about it. Um, I I think with the level of technology that we saw outside, my guess is there's a level of still functioning government that maybe can't actually control the populace that is controlling the high-tech stuff. Maybe. And that's just something we haven't seen yet. 
there could be a very like the island kind of set up in here where we have multiples of people or we're, we're seeing copies. It's, it's hard to say. There's just there's a lot of room for what you could do in this story. Um, crazy that they decide to have Ebola but blue. I guess. I mean, yeah, that sky virus uh, is pretty crazy. Yeah, but you'd think there would be more, like people with gas masks and stuff there for that. But well, the issue is all the people we see around her, are like people living in the trenches. They're yeah. poor people. So well, yeah. I mean, I mean, who's to say? There's a lot of the country that we don't know yet. So yeah, um, I think it was good. Uh, Giuseppe is wasn't wasn't he also doing Spider Man for he a while? Was, yeah. yeah. Him and um, Humberto Ramos used to trade. Yeah. Uh, very good style. Works really well for this book. So we'll be really neat to see where they go from here. I'd, I'd say I'll follow suit and I'll give it a four. You know, I, there's a lot of leeway that you can do with this. And so it'll be neat to see what they ultimately decide to do. Because there's got to be a bigger story than just mistaken identity for how people got to the West here. Sure. All right. Um, let's move on to Marauders. Which is another uh, Marvel title. So this is going to be continuing on with the X stuff. So Marauders number one. Uh, for this one, I'm going to go ahead and try to do a little bit faster. So I'm going to just talk about the core cast for this book real fast. Um, first of all, though, uh, right writing for the book is Gary Dugan, and then art is Matteo Lilia. Lulia. Yeah, it's Jerry Duggan. Yeah, doing doing the writing. Yeah. Um, and so the, the core character is going to be Kitty Pride and Lockheed, Storm, Nightcrawler, Iceman, Wolverine, Emma Frost, Bishop, and Pyro. Now, a lot of those characters aren't going to show up in this story, but regardless, they're the ones that are supposed to be the main focus. So as everyone is making their exodus into Croatoa, one mutant is not allowed in, and that is Kitty Pride. When she first tries to walk into the portal, she winds up walking into it headfirst and winds up breaking her nose. And probably, at least for the rest of this issue, we see her with the, the damage from that. Like, she's got her nose set and, like, a black eye. And so she actually has to travel to the island of Krayatoa the old-fashioned way on a boat. And even when she gets there, she winds up finding out she can't get admission to the island. Which is odd. Because she should be able to just phase through the island, but maybe she just doesn't want to go in if she can't go through a portal. I don't know. Um, there is a little bit of intrigue in that Emma Frost has a spot on what's called the Silent Council. And she was keeping a seat open for somebody that she called the Red Queen and King. Which I'm pretty sure is where Kitty's going to wind up showing up in the story. They also have like a weird subtext between her and Kitty where... Emma Frost is kind of like, oh, Kitty's such a kid name. You should be called Catherine. I don't know why you let people call you that. It's like, I don't know. It was a weird sort of... It's just a coming of age kind of thing. I mean, it was a weird sort and of she, she, I mean, she can make it. She can go on the island. She just can't go through the portals to get to the island. She can't get into the inner section of the island. She can only stay on the outside, on the beach. She can't actually interact with anybody who's living on the inside of the island. So she actually can't physically be on Croatoa in like their sanctuary. She can only stay on the beach on the outside. Hmm. Which we find other people who can, you know, come come and go. And of course Iceman actually comes out and kinda 
hanging around with her. But it's odd that, like, nobody else seems to care to hang out with Kitty. Like, they're just kind of like, whatever. Yeah, you can't get in. Cool. Wolverine's having uh, alcohol smuggled in. And he's having Kitty smuggle it in since he's got the boat. So there's a like, there's actually, like, a small bit of just, like, necessities that you can't get on Croatoa. Things like coffee, alcohol, I I would assume cigarettes, but, like, there's just a batch of stuff that Kurotoa can't make or chooses not to make. And so Kitty is bringing some of that stuff in. Contraband, yeah. Yeah. As the story unfolds, Kitty starts finding out from Iceman that there's certain locations that aren't allowing the mutant populace to go through these portals. Some of them that are... Uh, not aligned with Kurotoa yet, and some that are, but are still having kind of blockades set up around their portals. We also have this long conversation with uh, Emma Frost, where she's basically wanting to set Kitty up with a a high-powered ship to kind of be her base of operation to do things outside of Kurotoa and be uh, a part of the Hellfire Club industry. Uh, which Kitty, of course, is not happy with at first because her and Emma have a long, long history. Ultimately, long story short, she she does start to soften to the idea. But before she makes any decisions, Iceman winds up taking a trip to Russia, where he finds that a military blockade has been put up around the portal to uh, Krotoa. One of the soldiers that they have there has a mutant damaging field and nearly aces... Um, Iceman, as he can turn off his power. This leads uh, Kitty to decide that they need to, like, do a strike on the Soviet site and, like, get whatever refugees they can out, even if it means they have to sail there on their own. And so she uses a a boat that she'd borrowed to set off to sail, with um, Storm coming along, Iceman, and then the original Pyro, who has got a lot more uh, Irish draw to his name than I remember him having before. This kind of touches us up with Bishop, which is a character I don't think they actually really said was going to be a part of the story. But we're finding out that there's other places around the world that don't have alignments yet with Croatoa, and they're actually building up their own kind of public narrative that, like, mutants are taking regular people away or smuggling people off the islands and killing them. Which, of course, Bishop knows that that's not the truth and tries to confront her about it, but he's one voice in a crowd. Right. Well, like, one's got these, like, mutant-eating dog things that they're using to keep people away from the doors, too. It's crazy. Yeah. I want to say that's also in Russia, wasn't it? It might have been. I can't remember yeah. which one had them. Because we have that and we have China, but, like, we deal mostly with Russia in this story. But that leads us to our team making their their way to Russia and starting to deal with these Russian soldiers and their little, like, compound of mutants that were trying to get to the gate. And, of course, most of their powers were turned off by this guy with the power dampening field. Well, Kitty gets around them by, like, teleporting, or by phasing through the ground and then destroying his armor. And then we kind of get to see Kitty... In her, in her element, where she really gets to take on all these uh, soldiers and fight them and, like, winds up stealing somebody's sword. And even though she isn't using lethal force, 
she does a few things that are pretty pretty painful ultimately, including phasing a gun into people's legs and just like leaving it there. Freaking awesome. But in the end, they wind up uh defeating this this unit of the Russian soldiers and taking off with a whole handful of new mutants that are going to be refugees brought to Krotoa. But although they can go through the gate, she cannot. And she winds up uh, deciding ultimately to take Emma's deal as long as she's not going to be able to be a part of the island. So instead of being a part of the X-Men, she'll be a part of the Marauders and kind of deal with mutants that have been detained or are kept away from the portals. Disenfranchised, not able to get to the island. Yeah, yeah. throughout the rest of the world. Because the X-Men right now can't really act without it bringing a lot of circumstances onto them. As a nation, if they were to bust into another country and start tearing it up, it would be basically an act of war. But Kitty can kind of do that as sort of a terrorist in in her own way. But, um, yeah, uh, it actually starts off a really, really strong part of the uh, of the series. This is probably one of my favorite of the new six titles. Uh, once again, suffers from the same issues with characters with weird dialogue and situations that they just don't quite fit. But overall, a really good story, and I really like the artwork for it. Um, the characters were used quite well. Pyro is a strange choice, but... In the end, really strong story. I'm interested to see where they continue it. Um, I would say this one is a, a 4.5 for me. Like, it's very close to being, like, a perfect book. Um, definitely one of the strongest of the six, like I said. And I think it's probably the more interesting title right now. But it still has the same kind of issues that some of these other ones have had. Cool. Uh, Josh, what did you think of the Marauders? I thought it was... Actually, super fantastic. Um, I think Kitty was great in it. I like the pirate aspect of it. I didn't pick up on the part where she can't go into the inner sanctum of, like, I didn't pick up on that. I just figured, she, I just, the only thing that I read, because I, re- I reread it twice to double check that, I didn't see anything that said that she couldn't go into the inner sanctum, unless that happens in another book. No, it's it's established pretty hard in this one. But we also see it in all the other books. Kitty, Kitty is completely locked out. Yeah, so I think that that might be because I haven't read the other books that you don't pick up on. Like if as a standalone, this one you don't you just pick up that she can't go through the portals, and so like I might think have something to do with her phasing powers, like or jacking that up maybe. Um, I'm not sure. Like I don't know what Krakoa is all like. Nobody, I mean, it's kind of nobody's really sure what its ulterior motives are yet. But regardless of that, like. The team is pretty cool. Um, when you're talking about like Pyro being extra, extra Scottish or well, Irish or whatever he is. Well, like when you watch the original X Men cartoon, he's very that way. Yeah. So I think he's always supposed to have been that way. Yeah, it's it's kind of a matter of just it's it's not great consistency. It's all right. It just kind of it's 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 all right. It works for him here. It is a little like. Oh, look, he's Irish. Remember that. Remember, oi, 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 all the time. But, like, whatever, it's fine. Um, but there, there is some, some interesting ideas for why Kitty can't make it in. One of them is that it may be just psychological with Emma actually keeping her out because she wants to manipulate her. The other end is, like, in House of Power of X, we know that um, Mora 
is hiding. She's faked her own death, and she's in this section of the island that nobody else is supposed to get to. Kitty could get to it, because there's nothing that can stop her from getting there, if she wanted to, or even if she did it on accident. So I think it's Kurotoa deliberately leaving her out. But anyways, I'm sorry, continue. Oh, no, I mean, um, other than that, like, the fact that Iceman and Storm, who are both um, Omega-level mutants on the same team is pretty crazy. I mean, because they're, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, because of her powers are so unique and interesting that, like, they might eventually make Kitty a, an Omega-level beaten because of how powerful she can be with those phasing powers. Well, like, things we've seen her do in the past, like the giant bullet situation where she phased the entire, like, planet-destroying bullet through the Earth, basically. I mean, yeah, her power level is crazy. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same as other powers. I mean, Pyro isn't really that strong of a mutant. The only thing he can do is control fire. He can't make it, so he has to have it. He actually asks for it at a certain point in this yep. in this book. I mean, he gets dragon fire, which is really cool. It doesn't I don't, I don't think it actually burns him either. Like I think that like by controlling it it doesn't burn him either. But if he doesn't have a lighter or a match or a spark or something, like he's worthless. So it's like he's not that powerful, but like the other ones are. And so, I mean, that's a pretty cool team to put together. I mean, there's not very many Omega-level mutants. Like, I think, what? I think there's like 10. There's a whole handful of different ones. But, yeah, it's, it's what's classified as that, there's not a lot. Yeah, I think there's only like... But you're, but you're right. It's an amazing team. Like, this is top-notch. And honestly, like, Pyro, it was an odd choice, but he's super cool in the story. For a pirate, a pirate crew, like a pirate kind of team, like what, like the you know, X Force is your Black Ops, and like then you got your this and your that, and your Excalibur is your magic, and your X Men. There's there used to be two X Men teams. I don't know what they're doing with that now, but like there's always kind of a feel, and like the Marauders being what it is, it's like basically just pirates, which like modern day pirates is kind of cool. So. She's got, like, instead of a pair, she's got a dragon, and she's got her sword now, and yeah, whatever. I hope she brings up, like, a, a kind of mixture with her crazy Croatoan, like, magic uniform. Maybe, hopefully she gets one. Like, I mean, no, they can't, like, it won't let her on the island, like, u- utilize everything, but maybe it's just like, hey, at least gonna have a cool uniform, so she'll get, like, a cool pirate with the boots and stuff from, like, the, her 70s outfit. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that she gets, you know, a more unique outfit. I, I kind of think she will, but for right now, the belly quava, like, thing that she's got going on is pretty cool, so. Did you, did you give her a rating? Um, I, four and a half, like, it, like, like, like you said, like, if a, for a good a jump on book, like, I'm not caught up on X books at all, so I kind of vaguely know what's going on. Like, but I like reading that book by itself, and that's what I think really defines a really great book. Of like, oh, I, I don't have to read ten thousand issues to understand what's going on. It just reads well by itself, and it did. And the art's fantastic, and like the way I mean, compared to Excalibur, I thought that the as far as two comparative X books, like this one had more like. There's more heart in this one. Like, you believe in the characters more, almost. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel this is a much stronger title. 
Right on. Um, yeah, I'd follow suit with you guys. I mean, pretty much everything you say, I echo. I mean, as far as a thing, the team working on the book's good. I mean, Jerry Duggan's written Deadpool a lot, uh, a handful of other team books. So, like, the guy's good. And as far as the book, I me, mean, yeah, I give it a four and a half as well. I like the team. I've always liked Kitty Pryde as a character, so I think it's cool that we're moving her into... Ever since all the changes with her in X-Men, where she kind of took over as a leader for the kids and then eventually was writing the school, like, I thought all that stuff was neat. Like, I, I like that we've given her a little grace age-wise. I think that's really cool. And as far as, like, a team, I mean, yeah, they're not... Even though we have Omega-level characters in there, they're kind of the... I don't know, they're kind of the the stepchildren of the group. I mean, Kitty Pryde's always been the fun kid, but, like, current Iceman, he's kind of a stepchild. Pyro, for sure. Storm doesn't get used the way she should. Bishop's always been a stepchild. Emma Frost, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, good guy. I mean, you know. So, I don't know. Team-wise, I like I like the dynamic. I think it's cool. So, yeah, I, I like, like, yeah. Four and a half. Um, I, don't really, I don't really think... I mean, Emma's... She's always up to something. She always, uh, always has ulterior motives. I don't know if Bishop's going to be part of the team. I think that he's just a side story with, like, the Professor X. Like, he's kind of his operative in the field of, like, trying to figure things out. I don't know if they're going to put him on the actual team. I think that's a side story, but... It, it's really possible. I I had to look again. He is listed as part of the team, but who knows? You know, he may be off again within like the first few issues who knows weird time traveler dude shows up and then disappears yeah but i mean what he's doing makes sense for the rest of the book like the whole thing about this is like nations that are opposed to mutants being able to move out or be on their own to to create the new mutant nation so like him being out in the field finding where people are uh, massing against them makes sense Although, I question having a guy with a giant M tattooed on his eye to be your stealth guy. I mean, just for me. Yeah. It has always been odd that that's his, one of his defining characteristics. He's, he's one of the people. He just has a face tattoo. <laughs> maybe maybe people get uh, embarrassed about it. They don't look very often. They're like, ooh, that guy's got a face tattoo. Shouldn't, shouldn't look at him too much. It's so weird. <laughs> oh, man. All right, um, let's move on to uh, the far sector. Uh, this is coming out of DC as part of the Young Animal imprint. Uh, it's written by N.K. Jemison. Jemison? I don't know how to pronounce it. It's J-E-M-I-S-I-N. And she's written a whole batch of novels. Like, she's a sci-fi writer. So, as far as the name, I don't... I think this might be the first comic book she's done, I guess. But she won a, she won a Hugo Award, so... She's well-known in other avenues of authorship, I guess. Uh, and the artist is Jamal Campbell, which he's had a whole handful of variant covers that have happened over the last two couple years. Um, probably most recently you know him if you read Naomi. He did the art for Naomi, so that's probably the most recent thing I think he's done interiors for. Good artist, though, like as far as style is concerned. Um, anyhow, so we when we first open up, we start out at basically a murder scene. Um, and we have a lot of exposition coming from a character that's, uh, a, for all intents and purposes, a brand new character that it happens to be a Green Lantern also. Um, as far as, like, a character, her design's pretty cool. She wears, like, a, I don't know, kind of like a rain slicker, sort of. 
And we find out that she, where she's at, she's been called to basically serve as a police assistant dealing with this murder on this planet that up until this point hasn't had any cases of murder in a very, very, very long time. And the police, as they are there, don't know how to deal with it. They have no idea what to do with any of it, really. And while she's there, herself, she's a young person. So, like, she knows, like, having been on Earth and seeing crime shows. And so she tries to sort of direct them how to do things and best to her knowledge, uh, trying to figure out who the person was that was murdered. And what we have of the body is, like, part of an arm, part of the interior, but, like, a whole chunk of the body has been basically eaten, which is crazy. Um, and so the f- planet she's on, it's in a sector of the Guardians of the Guardians of the Galaxy don't police, really. It's far enough out in the world that it doesn't have its own Green Lantern. It doesn't have its own number. And she's not entirely sure exactly how far that really means, but in the grand scheme of the Green Lantern Corps, if you don't have a number for your sector of space, you're so far away they don't that the blue guys don't care about you. Which is crazy, considering. But, uh, as we go through the book, we want to find out there's these three different factions of people that reside in this section of planet, a section of space. And these different planets, initially when they formed, they all formed at the same time. For a while there was war, and then eventually they all came to a, a peaceful understanding. And we have one section that's kind of, they're like digital. So they're not entirely normal people. And the way they talk, we use at symbols for their names. Like this one particular group has really crazy long names. So, like as an example, the the police officer that's driving her around um, while they're on their mission, his name is Sinhais of the Cliffs by the Streaking Ice. And that's all his name. Like that's... Like, that's a whole thing. So his people all have these crazy long names that are like, I don't know. I'm sure this, it's kind of like the idea of, like, Native American classic, like, big red bear type things. I, best I can understand. Um, but there's the three different factions. There's the Na. Then there's the At-At, which is written as an at symbol. And then A-T, which is the digital folks. And then there's the... Katopi, which are the more beasty type. Like, they're humanoid, but they're more, like, I don't know, more raw, ravenous-looking type. Rather than pretty humans, they're, like, uh, yeah, monstrous, I guess. Anyhow, so our peacekeeper has elected to go and meet with the council to let them know what's going on. So these are the three heads of the different factions on the planet, and yeah, like like I was saying earlier, they they talk about how there's been no murder on their planet for like 500-ish years. So this is like a crazy anomaly to their people, and none of them seem to know what to do about it. Uh, so when she shows up, she gets introduced and starts talking to the people, and they're all very like, I don't know, they're like aristocratic type. So they, they don't look down or like what she's doing doesn't really matter, even though this crazy butchering of a person is something they're all concerned about. They're more... They just feel like they're being forced to listen to her talk about it, which is, I don't know, kind of questionable. Anyhow, um, as we move through all that, we want to find out more about the character that got killed. And as far as a reason, best she can find out from interviewing people, there was no reason to kill the dude. He's just a, a dude. Had no connections to anybody important. Didn't matter as a, a thing at all. And yeah, he was partially eaten. Um, so... 
automatically the uh, the, the third clan, the monstrous type ones, their leader is like, well, it must have been one of my clan, because that's what our people will do at Solstice or whatever. We're not supposed to attack people, but animals or whatever, however they move forward is their genealogy or whatever. Anyhow, um, so like as that whole breakdown of like who you're supposed to talk to and how you're supposed to talk to each other goes down, we wind up finding out that the factions aren't as peaceful as we thought they were. And there's definitely pieces that outlie differently for a particular Green Lantern. And as far as like her powers, they're not real clear like how long she's been a Green Lantern, so I'm not really sure if it seems like certain things she does pretty easily and other things... So, so at one point while she's in the council room, she creates a couple chairs for her and the other officer to sit on. But when she does it, like, there's this... Then they first appear, there's also, like, a weird stuffed animal-looking alien thing sitting on the chair, and she's like, oh, crap, and makes it disappear. So I don't think she's actually been in Green Lantern super long. So I assume that'll come into play later on in the book. Because basically we're dealing... It's almost like... So if you think... Uh, Blade Runner, and when they're first establishing the world that you're in, it moves kind of like that. And it, we're also dealing with a murder, so it has a lot of similar threats to that idea. Anyhow, like as things go on, we wind up encountering a we catching the person that did the, the killing, and uh, so our officer goes down to the where she's being detained. We find out it's a female, and yes, it's of the uh, not of the uh, the third species, the ravenous ones. And the whole time she's walking around, like, all of the police around her are like, oh, they, they don't know what to do, like, how to behave around her, because she's, like, the only hardcore cop, that, and all of them are just normal, like, ticket rider types. And so are kind of afraid of her, because she also has this crazy power ring, and they don't want to be on the wrong side of her. Um, anyway, eventually she gets to where she's supposed to interview the murderer. And when we enter the room, the lights are off. And she's like, is that normal? And the other, the officer with her is like, no, I let me go get the lights fixed. And once the lights turn on, we see the person that we were supposed to be questioning is like ripped in half, sprayed all over the wall, crazy bloodbath murder scene. And we see this crazy blur dash across the room, and our officer chases after it. And that's basically where the story wraps. So like, the catch-all is that we sort of see the assailant that killed whoever it is in the chair... And the person in the chair has also been, like, ripped apart from the inside. It's it's crazy. Like, just messy. Um, as far as, like, a story, for a one-off issue, or for a first issue, I mean, I give it a two and a half. The art is fantastic. I think Jamal's a great artist. I think the story, probably one and two together, will make it stronger, only because it's paced kind of slow. Because we get a lot of development, and we get these three races, and they explain all the different things about the different races, and how the different races are supposed to interact, and we go back to the forming of the planets. So it's a lot of setup. And I think in a novel format, if you're reading it as a, as a, like a book book, not as a comic book, but like as a written novel, chances are it would play out slightly different. And once we have issue one and two together, I have a feeling it'll be stronger pace-wise. So, I mean... As far as that, I don't feel like it was a bad book. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of stuff to read. And, like, we cover a lot of ground. But even Blade Runner is super slow in the first, like, 30 minutes. So, anyhow. Yeah, right now I give it two and a half. That's, I mean, the art's great. Story's fine. But it is a little slow. Uh, Josh, what would you think of the uh, Far Sector? I give it a two. 
I don't. I wasn't very impressed with it at all. And I, you know, I honestly didn't even. I felt I felt the art at certain times is okay, but other times it's like a little dry. Like it's, it could be cooler, but it's like it gets a little. Again, the shot the shots are weird. Like it doesn't. There's no. There's not any action shots. There's no. It's just. I don't know. Like, there's something about it that just rubs me wrong. I don't know what it is. It just got. It's kind of overproduced with nothing going on. Like, it's just like a basically a cake made of completely a frosting. Was how I think about it. Like, there's no like substance to it. Tastes like sugar death. But um, and the story's really slow. Like, really, and it's and that's fine. I'm sure it'll develop. Like it. You know, she's written novels and all this kind of stuff. Like, I'm sure it'll develop and it's it's going to take some time. But as far as the first issue goes, like, if I was just like, oh, I'm going to pick up a book and see if, I, like, of the five that we did tonight, if I had to pick one that I'm going to pick up and from the first issue I read, that's going to be what I continue to read. This isn't going to be it. Like, there's nothing that grabbed me so strongly in this that, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't wait for the next issue. There's, that's, that's, I think, why I gave it such a low score. Sure. Uh, Rob, do you know anything about Far Sector? You know, I, I'd probably actually rate it about the same as Josh. I'd probably go, well, maybe a little higher. I'd be at two and a half. It was a smart choice to make this a Green Lantern story because we already have connections to the Green Lantern Corps. Otherwise, I think there would have been a real uphill battle for this. The big problem is uh, there's a lot of world building, and I kind of feel like this one sort of suffers from the same problem we're seeing a little bit more lately, where people aren't writing a single issue, they're writing a five-arc story, and then just breaking it into issues. And the problem for that is it's a little bit harder to get really jazzed about continuing on. This one has a good hook at the end, but um, does it do well enough to like really get you to come back? I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but the artwork for it, I, I actually really liked. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'd probably give it, I'd give it another issue just to kind of figure out like where they're going with some of this world building. But um, I can see what, what Josh was thinking. You know, and if it hadn't been a Green Lantern, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would give it that next issue. Right. Um, but it's you know, yeah. Sorry. Similar problem to the Joker movie, like because it's in Gotham, because it's Batman, we all went and watched it. But if this wasn't Green Lantern, would you pay a second issue to it? I, I don't know. I mean, right now we don't have a current Green Lantern book running, so there's a benefit there. I mean, Green Lantern ships to the Dark Stars, so that's a different thing happening altogether. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, initially I thought, why make another Green Lantern? Uh, because, you know, we just established Baz. I think people are starting to finally get behind Jessica Cruz with the Justice League or, uh, Odyssey. But I understand it now, because of like where this story is supposed to be taking place. Um, but I don't know. You know. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it, because it seems odd. Why would you even have a Green Lantern out in this section? If well, she was called to go out there by the the people of the planet, summoned her as a peacekeeper. Oh yeah, I I, I lost it. No worries. It's it's a small line that where she talks about being called out there to serve. It's, yeah, it's not a huge part of the story, but it, it's in there. 
she was requested because they felt something was building. She didn't get she didn't get called there because the murder already happened. She's like, um, counselors, you requested a Green Lantern for the city enduring. You knew this was coming. You damn near told me to expect it. So they they oh, knew something was coming up. So they felt something there. approaching, but they didn't know what. So that's what makes it even more sketchy. Like it's you know murder mystery ish. Like right. Yeah, the, the one downside is that I don't know. I don't know if they do a great job of really like building her up yet. But, but that's also like it's one of these catch twenty twos, you know. I mean, instead of it being written as a single issue, it's written as a, an arc, and so. And again, is she? You know, my, the only question that I took away from this book is like, well, there's a couple. But the main one was, is she actually a Green Lantern? That's what you can tell. We see the ring. See, like, I almost wonder she if uses she's her still... Well, but not well. She can't fly. Because she asks, it gets asked. If you ask her, she says, I just don't want to do it right now. But I don't think she can. That's a very good possibility. Because we don't know how she wound up on the planet in the first place. We join her while she's already there. Yes, that's... that's Huh. That's an interesting idea. If she's not a Green Lantern at all. I mean, I think the costume design is cool. Oh, yeah, her look is neat. I mean, the glasses are pretty cool. Her hair is very caked by the ocean, you know, from that music video. Yeah, anyway. I, I kind of got like a, a 1950s kind of doo-wop kind of style of the hair, too. You know? So it's a very particular look. I mean, it's a well-designed costume, but um, anyway, yeah, it's it'll be interesting. I mean, we'll see where it goes from here. Right. Cool. All right. Uh, let's go and run the uh, the interview with uh, with Russ Richardson. Or no, Russ 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 Richards. Yeah, I, you're doing better than me. I I tried to say it earlier and it was terrible. <laughs> Russ Richards. Yeah, Russ Richards. Uh, this is from the uh, Denver Pop Culture Con, uh, 2019. So uh, we're going to run that and then uh, we'll be back in a second. This is Top 5 Comics Podcast. We're at Denver Pop Culture Con 2019, and we're here with... Uh, Russ Richards Art. Excellent. And you're working on The Secret Life of Ewoks, both Volume 1 and 2 now. Volume 1 and 2, yes. I just uh, just released Volume 2 at this show. Um, technically, it'll be debuting at my next big show, but I brought a few copies just to show the, the Denver fans, because I had fans last year that picked up my first book. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize it was like a pre-release release. Pre-release, yes, yes. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Do you have some other stuff that you got in your works? or? So um, I'm always coming out with new stuff. I try to always have at least three to five new pieces every show. Um, in fact, this show I have almost all new stuff from last year. In fact, very little from last year is even carried over this year. That's awesome. Man. Yeah, so I try to always make it fresh, new, uh, every new thing. That way it makes it a little bit more, like, because my hand-painted stuff that I do, it makes it a little bit harder to come by and, and more valuable, more or less. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, you can't really see it here, but he's got these beautiful hand-painted glass picture frames with an image in the background and then the paint on the front of the glass. Correct. They're hilarious. We got several Pokemon just being thrown against the screen. It's great. It, 
but these are just done at shows, right? Uh, for the most part, yes. Um, I do have a website at russrichardsart.com. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I, I, I usually paint them at the shows, and yeah, and it's it's fun. It, just the, the interaction of people, and what's nice is it, it's it's an art that nobody really does anymore. It's just like the old animators used to do, you know, back in the day. And sure, there's still films that do it, but nobody that you don't see it at the shows. So yeah, you know, anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, alive. Yeah. <laughs> so. Like, this is a bit of a different kind of style of art, but it's, it's kind of comic art. But what really got you into doing art like this or comic art? Sure. Um, so I've, I've always been into the animation. I actually went to school for animation. I went to Utah, uh, Utah Valley University. Big shout out to them. Anyways, uh, learned animation, moved to Burbank uh, or Fullerton, and went did the whole, you know, worked in the industry, did the stuff, worked on Disney pins for a while. Oh, man, yeah. Just, cool. Oh, yeah. So stuff like that. And uh, I just have always enjoyed, the, you know, the cartoons, and, and I don't know. That's just kind of my style. I kind of uh, cross between Tex Avery and, uh, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. Well, Tex Avery is amazing. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad that he's now getting kind of like the recognition yes. that he should have gotten yes. forever ago. Oh, but, for sure. You know, I, I, I know when I was growing up, like, animation was just magic. I never even thought about who right. worked yeah. on it. But sure, sure, sure. Now, now we live in a different era. Oh yeah, for well, sure. The cool thing is, you kind of get to do whatever you want. But like, if you had a, a like a dream project, sure, where you could do something else. Like, what would you want to be doing? I, I think I'd still go down to just be an artist, just create. Okay. Yeah. You know so. what I mean? I, I I don't mean like that. I mean like okay, if you were able to have your own dream project, like you were going to be able to animate your own film, oh, or okay. you know, it, sure. or you were going to get like whatever property you wanted. Hmm. What what would that be? Or what would that look like? Oh man, see, I, I'd love to do something with dinosaurs. Okay. Just something, maybe like, I don't know, the post-apocalyptic and dinosaurs come back. I don't know. Oh, nice. Something crazy like that just off the top of my head. I don't know. Have you ever seen Cadillacs and Dinosaurs? Yes, I love Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Maybe something similar yeah, to that. Maybe yeah. maybe he'd make that work. That I didn't even fantastic. think about that until you said something. But yeah, that would be awesome. That would be really cool. Yeah. I'm surprised. No, no Jurassic Park stuff yet. Uh, I'm sold out of some of the stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, there so we go. I had stuff that was Jurassic Park, um, but I'm sold out. So no, that's yes. that's totally cool. Yes. Well, right on, man. Yeah. Uh, so if you were trapped on a desert island, what okay. five items would you bring with you? They can be people, but oh, five items. Well, um, <laughs> how ridiculous can I go with this? You can do it, whatever you like, man. <laughs> All right. So I would bring. I definitely bring my art book because you know I don't want to draw. Um, I would bring my wife, so there's two, just so I had company. There we go. Yeah, you know, misery loves company, right? Well, so we'll just go. all yeah. be on the island together. Well, yeah, you'd want to be together. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'd bring tools so I could build something. Okay. A uh, house or livable quarters. Um, Let's see. Two more things. Two more things. What else could I bring? Telescope. I don't know. Just so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, why not? And then, um, what would I? See, I don't want to be the cliche thing. Oh, bring a boat. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. What else would I well, bring? Most people are very clever at escaping this island. Oh, okay. But see, I don't know if I'd ever want to leave. Like, what if this is a desert paradise? It's like, true. Or, or an island, like, paradise. We didn't say or... what the island was like. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the last thing I would bring, oh, man. What would I bring? Music. I'd bring something to listen to music. Gotta, gotta have a little yeah. bit of music. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. uh, yeah. So that's all what right. I'd bring. I don't know. Probably not the most interesting thing, but yeah. Nah, it's, yeah. it's all good. It's all right. Yeah. So, okay, our, our last one's gonna be, if you were in a fantasy land, would okay. you ride a chocolate pony? Yes. Yes. And eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully 
Probably not while riding. <laughs> Maybe. Like mid-gallop. Huh? Right. Just taking the main. <laughs> well, that is awesome, man. Nice, I yes. appreciate it. <laughs> All right, we just want to thank Russ again for taking the time to chit-chat with Rob during the con. Uh, definitely check out his books. I mean, the, the whole... Secret Life of Ewoks, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, fantastic, neat idea. It's fun. And he's super excited and very passionate about what he does. And that's, it's such an, it's, it's a cool thing to come across in the industry, you know. And he reminds me a lot of, um, the, the voice for Bender. Oh, Don DiMaggio. Yeah. Where he's just, like, he's infectious. Like, if he was coming to me to like get me to buy things or spend money on stuff, yeah, I would just do it because he's so excited about what he's doing. So that's awesome. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, well, uh, what'd you learn today, Rob? I learned that if you have a white ring and a black ring, you just pretty much just it's just death and life, death and life. It's it's like the the super blender, I guess. Constant matter torture. Yeah. And evidently, I also learned. The Lobo could have just been a thousand people all, all the time. Anytime he wanted to. He just, boom, millions of people. <laughs> Lobo is free. I mean, it irons out the extra Lobo at the beginning of New 52, which we all kind of thought was a thing, so whatever. I mean, all of us, a lot of us thought it. Uh, Josh, what did you learn today? Rob taught me that the new Sergeant, or well, not the new, that Sergeant Airborne from G.I. Joe was the original, very first Native American in the G.I. Joe team. I didn't know that. As G.I. Joe, well-versed as I am in that that universe, like he taught me something. He schooled me today. That doesn't happen very often in G.I. Joe. Usually I can go toe-to-toe with the best of them. Yeah. That and Saved by the Bell. I can go toe-to-toe with anybody. <laughs> There's a deep dive on that, I think. Uh, so what did I learn today? You learned that Apocalypse is all about magic. <laughs> and his bathrobe. <laughs> And then now he's also Prince. Magic and the letter A. Uh, that is that is true. He's Both like, those things. He's like, All three of those things, actually. Is he like one step away from becoming a Muppet? I mean, he is kind of bluish. So. That's true. He's, he's getting very close. I read an article on him changing his name into an unspeakable symbol. But like, since the A is still there, like when I read it in my head, I'm like... No longer call me Apocalypse, call me A! Like, just, like, really, just aggressive, loud, like, just letter. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be in there. But that, that's what I like, and that makes me laugh, because then people are just like, ugh, why did you just yell at me? Like, that's how I, and, like, he just, like, yells the letter A at them. And they're like, ugh, why are you so aggressive with just that one letter? That's how I read it. Well, and it's it's weird already because you know you get this like undercurrent of oh well I'm not going to use my slave name I'm going to use my mutant name, which is like Apocalypse, but evidently he's not using his slave name or his mutant name. He just came up with a whole other name. <laughs> he, just, he just aggressively screams a letter at them. I, I don't think it has a punctuation, but I can see what you're saying. Well, the, it's so aggressive that there's that, like doesn't matter. It's no punctuation font. needed. It is a big font, that's true. It's a very large font with a bunch of swirly designs around it. Like, that's the punctuation. <laughs> oh, crazy. <laughs> like, like the the peaking of 
the soundboard when I just yelled that, that's the punctuation. It's god awful. It's going to sound terrible. Uh, all right. Um, well, you got some books to watch. Anybody? Rob, books to watch? I mean, right, right now there is six new titles for X-Men. And for the most part, they are good. There's some, there's some oddness, but they are, they are good. Um, what is it? Uh, Encounter? No. There's, there's a new one for Marvel. It's going to be like a one shot with the. Oh, incoming. Incoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be really interesting. And then they're revisiting the Annihilus Wars in yep. a bunch of single one shots, which could be really cool. Um, because they haven't really done a bunch of space stuff for a while. And so this could be a great storyline. Cool. Uh, Josh, you got anything on the plate over there? Um, some anniversary stuff going on with Usagi, where they're going to do like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Like, I'm thinking to do some variant covers and things coming up. Cool. Um, and then some Superman stuff coming up, where he's going to potentially do away with a secret identity. Like, they're not... Nobody's quite sure what is all going to come of that, but it'll be kind of neat. And then, yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. Well, book-wise, we're going to have a restarting of Star Wars. And now we're going to be doing... So the, the initial run ended at number 75. I think it was 75. 75 or 76. Something like that. I don't remember the number. Anyhow, the next batch is going to be taking place between Hope... Or, sorry, between... Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. The first batch took place between um, Hope and Empire, so it was before all the stuff in Empire happened. This is the uh, follow-up to that. I'm really kind of jazzed about this time frame only because we don't have a lot of stories of how Leia became a bounty hunter, how Luke finished his training, what Chewie and Lando did to sneak into the palace. I mean, we see Chewie's, but how Lando got there. So, like... This is a different birth of time that I think is going to be cool. And another thing is, uh, you know, I mean, one of the biggest storylines that Dark Horse had was Dark Empire, where they introduced Dash Rindar, and they kind of explained some of that stuff. I wonder if they're going to touch that up again in the new Marvel continuity. It'd be cool if they did. Black Mm -hmm. Sun and all that stuff. Yep. And then the other end is we could actually explain uh, how Naz Kanan finds Luke's lightsaber. Ooh, that'd be interesting. As, like, as a thing, I think it's a cool time frame. It's going to be Charles Soule writing, at least at the beginning. Good writer, so stoked for that. Um, Battle Pug from Image is getting ready to wrap up. So if you haven't read that yet, you should, because it's just hilarious. Mike Norton is amazing. Um, we're getting a new Thor. Uh, not character, but a new Thor series. It's going to have Donny Cates writing it, and that guy's just so popular. And At this point, he's really, really good, so it'll be interesting to see a new... A new take on Thor, because Jason Aaron's leaving it, and Donny Cates is picking it up. So, I guess we'll see how that goes. Um, I think it'll be cool, though. And then, uh, we're getting ready to have Ravencroft happen, uh, which is in Marvel also. And I'm not entirely sure what's going on with it, but the covers look really cool, and it's like a horror story thing that affects uh, Wolverine, Cat America, like everybody in the X-Universe, or in the Marvel Universe, it sort of matters. So I think that'll be cool. Just I like the name too, Ravencroft. I think it's a cool name. Um, that's pretty much what I got as far as uh, stuff right now, at least. I mean, we had Death and Glory start back up. I think that's great. Recommenders, fantastic. I love that series. 
Um, but other than that, that's pretty much all I got. Um, anything else? No? I think that's, I think that's it. Okay. Um, I do want to make it throw a, th- a little thing out, which I mentioned on the other podcast also. Oh, uh, and other stuff to, list, to look for. So there's, there's a second podcast me and Josh do. It's a little more, a little more rated R, uh, called Never Been Done Podcast. You can find that also on Podomatic or on iTunes or pretty much everywhere. Spotify. Spotify as well. Um, Rob has a YouTube channel. He does gaming, uh, Ant Man 2050. So if you want to watch some games, listen to Rob talk about that stuff, that's what he does. Has a whole series about Mortal Kombat. Um, so if you dig Mortal Kombat, check it out. Uh, and there's a movie that uh, Anton Yelchin's parents have made a documentary about him. Uh, the movie's called I Love Antona. Oh, or Antana. It, it's basically his name, just with an extra letter on the end of it. Um, anyway, his parents made a documentary about him uh, with a lot of home movies and video from sets and all this other stuff that the kid did. And if you don't know who that is by name, you should know him from movies. I mean, Odd Thomas, uh, he was new... He was the checkoff in the new version of Star Trek. Um, he was in Fright Night, a whole handful of other like awesome movies. The kid's been doing it. He he'd been doing it since he was a kid. Um, anyhow, I would say you to check it out. Um, you know, as a thing, it's a real. He was a, he was a sad loss. It's it's kind of interesting because I know when uh, Steve was first telling me about it, I was kind of like, eh. but once you start. Once you see the preview, it might really change your mind. Like it, it seems like a really interesting thing and very. It it kind of shows like how many lives one life can touch and like how important you know somebody that maybe you didn't think was that important really is and like how, how much like. How, how much somebody's dedication can like really change who they become in the end? I guess. What your racial life really is like. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely, like, uh, the the preview for it was really interesting, really exciting to check out, so. So, yeah, I would say to give that a, give that a check out or a view or digitally rent it. I mean, I know his parents went to a lot of work to make it, and I think that's freaking amazing. So, that, and I keep seeing trailers from Mr. Rogers, the uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood, and I think that'll be great, too. Anyway. Um, so Taki? 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 Nope. It's like, it's like Mike, except not Mike. Exactly. <laughs>